Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and we have another Q&A with Dr. Mike from Renaissance Periodization. And before we jump into the Q&A, we have a discussion to come, but before that, I do want to let you guys know, and I know lots of you have been waiting for this, the Volume Landmarks ebook from Renaissance Periodization written by James Hoffman and Mike is now available. Uh, when this comes out, it will certainly be available and there'll be a link in the description box right below. And this is going to really, really help a lot of you guys out. And I'm sure we've covered various questions on the podcast that relate to this ebook. But they, I mean, I know it's going to be hugely in depth. I haven't actually managed to read it just yet. I will have by the time this comes out. So I'm very excited, but I just got it today. So um, I, yeah, once I start reading it, I'll be sharing little nuggets from there and you guys will Maybe you already have it by the time this comes out, but if you haven't, please have a look at it below. I know Mike and James have put a lot of time and effort into this particular book, haven't you? Tons, and it's really a super in-depth exploration of the concepts of MRV, MEV, MAV, all that stuff. And a couple of the chapters are actually how to apply them to various things. Like there's a whole chapter on how the volume landmarks change with dieting. So like, what if I'm in a cut? What if I'm in a mass? What if I'm isochloric? How does that change all those? There's graphs and charts and descriptions to plot out everything. And it's super cool because it's going to get you a really, really awesome fundamental understanding of how training volume works, how to manipulate it. And after that, no matter what sport or activity you do, whether it's just building muscle, getting stronger or anything else, you can have a really, really, really sweet understanding about training volume from a theoretical uh, perspective and it's going to help out a ton and you just won't make there'll be a lot less mystery about designing training programs just carved right out because the volume landmarks give you a really distinct answer to a lot of questions yeah i think the volume landmarks in general just that a bit i mean before they came out i'm not really sure how people really talked about volume whereas now it's very clear and it makes very good sense so no i'm i'm really excited to read it because i absolutely love the scientific principles of strength training and i know this is kind of like an addendum to that so pretty um, much yeah I, I i cannot wait and and just for buyer beware we highly recommend you read scientific principles of strength training before you read this book or be familiar with overload specificity um, variation and all that stuff because if you're not familiar with the fundamental training principles, it's going to be a tough read. And the, and the whole thing is a very technical book, so it's a tough read to begin with. Um, we had a really uh, competent person edit it into human language, but there's only so human you can make some of these concepts, which are pretty pretty deeply mathematical and their logical structure sometimes a little complicated. So um, bring, bring your thinking cap because it's definitely not a book. It, it's not one of those like um, who want to get in shape. It, it's, it's considerably beyond that. No, I think I think a large sum of our audience, that's music to their ears. Um, because, yeah, I think once you've read the scientific principles of strength training a few times, then you grasp it and then you want to develop it and that's what the book's going to do. So, yeah, that, that's super yep. exciting. Um, so the first thing we wanted to talk about, actually, is because we were getting off into a kind of like a very fruitful discussion off air about the water weight generally um, and how it can really kind of screw your mind like when you're massing you gain a load of weight initially because of all the carbs and the water that comes with it when you're cutting you drop that and you look skinny and flat and depleted um, and then 
just in general how much of an actual mindfuck it can be. Um, so I, I wanted to open the floor, just let Mike kind of have a bit of a ramble about it because I know he had many comments to make. Yeah. So let me frame the discussion as to how people usually talk about water weight and dieting and why sometimes for a lot of the people listening, that those discussions are not complex enough because they don't address our very particular needs for what folks like us are trying to do. The usual way we discuss body, water, and dieting is because uh, of the usual way people approach dieting. There's it, it, nothing wrong with approaching dieting this way. It's just what most people come at dieting with and want to get out of dieting. What's most people's dieting? They eat normally. They eat whatever sort of or some way. They begin some kind of formal cutting diet or fat loss diet. They're, and then they go through the diet, which lasts months. By the way, there's nothing wrong with that approach. And then they end the diet. And then they hypothetically, the attempt is to keep the lost weight off, right? Or they start at a certain weight. They do a masking diet that, again, lasts a really long time. And then they come off of it at some point. And then, you know, that's it. It's just so it's basically like this. There's a bump down. So there's a transition down. Long time with no transition. Transition back to maintenance. And then you're good to go. Or, you know, you transition up. And there's a long curve up. And you transition over here. And you go back to maintenance. So... These transition phases, when you go from a regular diet to a cutting phase or from a regular diet to a massing phase or from those phasic diets back to regular eating or more regular eating, those transition phases, people know the body water gets funky, right? But the thing is that it's, not, it's only two transition phases per diet, starting and stopping. We know a lot about how all that works and we know a lot of it just kind of gets uh, cleaned up in the wash anyway. You know what I mean? So for example, if you are cutting and you start your goal weight at your first day of the diet, say you weigh, you know, um, uh, 100 kilos and you want to weigh 90 kilos at the end of the diet. Well, if you start at the beginning of the diet before the body water drops, you might be like 97 kilos after three days and you're like, holy shit, I only have seven to go. As you drop weight, a variety of hormonal factors, uh, diet fatigue, increased response to various foods, um, will actually start putting water weight on you again, right? And, and if that doesn't happen, as soon as you transition to normal eating, you'll put all the water weight back on. So it's one of those, like, if you really want to go down to 90, it's either you just shoot straight to 90, and that's kind of a bloated 90 as you stop, and then over the next couple of weeks as you eat normally, your water renorms, and then it turns out you really were at 90, right? The tissue comes, you get some re-bloating from the diet, but then you get some de-bloating from the lack of stress hormones, et cetera. If you don't get the stress hormone response, all you need to do is wait a couple of days after the diet is over and then remeasure your weight again. So like, because you started weighing before the diet started, you start weighing after the diet stopped, not like the last day of the diet, but after like five days, and then it's all gravy, right? the bumps kind of take care of themselves and it's really not that big of a deal. And the advice to people is really quite simple. And there's not a whole lot of tracking problems because you say, hey, look, hey, just start measuring your body weight a week after your diet starts and you're good. Or just measure a week after it stops and you're good. You know what I mean? And there's not much to track there because most of the diet occurs during relatively stable times. So we have the situation here that if you're into advanced hypertrophy periodization, 
you're going to be altering water weight both so much and so often that it can seriously throw off conventional approaches to weight tracking. So for example, let's bring in the mini cut. Mini cuts last anywhere from three to six weeks. Okay. Then you're massing before you mini cut usually, and you're massing after you mini cut. The mini cut itself, part of the design is because in the first month of dieting, we don't really worry about muscle loss anyway, we can afford to drop calories by a huge amount. And because one of the things we're doing is sensitizing the body to carbohydrates, not only do we, you know, for later massing, not only are we dropping a lot of uh, weight, but we're also dropping carbs usually pretty considerably. So where does that leave us? That means that in a very short time window, we are going from very extreme massing at the tip of the mass into a mini cut that's also very extreme deficit. And we're going back into a mass. Now, when we go back into a mass, that might not be extreme, but when you're that carb depleted, when you had a huge deficit, boy, is your body weight going to do funky things. So, so we're left with the following. We have an individual who weighs, let's say, 80 kilos. They start their mini cut, and a week later, they weigh like 77 kilos. Are they done mini cutting? I mean, let's say they wanted to mini cut for three weeks and lose a kilo each time, which is reasonable. Are they done? Well, no, because that's pretty much all glycogen at that point. That might be a kilo of actual tissue loss and then two kilos of body water that comes out with the carbohydrate and the salt, etc. So, you know, that's really confusing as to what you're supposed to do now. So the answer is what you're supposed to do. Well, then you take the next two weeks to go down to 75 kilos once your weight stabilizes. And then someone's going to say, now, hold on a second. In three weeks, you're dropping five kilos. That's 12 pounds. That's ins- or 11 pounds. That's insane, right? Five kilos. It's 11 pounds in three weeks. That's insane, right? You think, I, I messed up. It was too fast. I must have lost muscle. Well, it turns out that literally three days after, uh, hold on a second. Hey, Dougie, can you, can you um, kill the dog or something? Sweet. We don't really want a dog anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't worry, viewers. That was a joke. Animal cruelty. <laughs> <laughs> nah, whatever. Um, you know, she's actually told me that she wants to join Satan in the underworld. <laughs> she doesn't want to live anymore, which is totally understandable. Dogs often talk to me about the devil. So in any case, <laughs> so, you know, the, the answer to that is, well, you know, hold on a second. You're not really 75. You're a dry 75. It's three days later, you're going to be 77 again. And then you have only lost three kilos, just like you thought you were supposed to lose. Right. But that's a week, each direction of an inability to accurately measure. And then what are we talking about? It's a three week diet, right? So like, basically you're in the dark for like a good half of the diet. And then we enter another problem. You want to set goals for massing. So if you take the end of your mini cut diet and say, okay, weigh 75 kilos to over the next, let's say 12 weeks. Well, let's say you mass, you want to put on five kilos over 12 weeks. It's not unreasonable. Are you like done after two weeks when you hit 80 kilos? Well, no, that's nonsense, right? Because you were 80 kilos, you know, just a couple weeks ago. So it turns out you need to set a goal of like 82, 83 kilos, and that converts to five actual kilos of tissue. But the first week is just basically nonsense. So 
we have a bunch of these similar scenarios all the time in dieting, which is very different from like um, bodybuilding show dieting, which is like you start really far in advance, like at least eight weeks. And then after a while, you just go by look anyway. You know, like it doesn't matter what the scale says. If you're not stage lean, you got to grind it harder. Like if you're four weeks out, you already hit your scale, your state predicted stage weight, but you're like not sharp enough yet. You go lower. And then of course, when you fill out with carbs, you're actually over your predicted stage weight, that whole thing. There's something to guide you, but on a mini cut, I mean, there's not really any objective standards of what you should look like at the end of a mini cut. And even the look at the end of a mini cut can be really illusory because you lose a lot of muscular glycogen and water. You just look deflated. Like after one week of mini cutting, I look terrible. After a couple more weeks, I start to look pretty lean. The first week back to massing, I look like a god. Like I'm filled out, I'm dry, and I'm just enormous and still super lean. And there's veins everywhere. It's awesome. But that is, you know, it's a bit too late after a week of massing to be like, oh, I did get lean enough. Or after a week of massing to be like, nope, I should have been leaner. It, it, you know, it's, it's not, there's no, if there's that additional problem for accuracy of measuring mini cuts and, and, and masses and all those other things. So what are we supposed to do? What's the answer to this? And, and here's the answer. And it's, it's not, um, it's to some, it won't be a pleasing answer. The answer is you collect lots of data on yourself pretty much at all times. You know how much body water, you don't even sort of need to know how much body water you drop based on whatever conditions. Because people start obsessing in that, like, I think I usually drop five pounds in the first week, but looks like I only drop four. Does that mean the diet's not? Forget all that shit, because there's so many factors that go into body water, ups and downs. You can't count them all. Here's what you do. You figure out during the stable periods of maintenance in your diets, during stable periods of cutting, during stable periods of massing, what your numbers are, particularly for maintenance. Right, so you know your maintenance is pretty much three thousand calories a day. Like, you've you've gone over this a ton. Every time you're cutting and you do a stable cut, you lose weight exactly like you would be predicting from a three thousand maintenance. Every time, at least in the first couple of weeks, when adaptive thermogenesis hasn't hit in, after the first couple of weeks of massing, you gain pretty much as expected from a three thousand. So you know you're pretty sure your maintenance is three thousand. That from that number, you just have to raw input the diet for a mini cut and just knock it out. And then after the mini cuts over, you know the numbers you're supposed to hit for a mass, just knock those out. Because the good thing about mini cuts, masses and stuff, there's not much adaptation that occurs, right? Because people say, well, what's my new maintenance? Well, your new maintenance is gonna be damn near the same as your old maintenance after a mini cut. And it's gonna be very, very small difference. So you lost like, you know, okay, 2% of your body weight. So what your, your maintenance is gonna be off by 2%? Who gives a shit? Like that's, that you, you can't even eat that accurately. But because there's not really adaptive thermogenesis there, your metabolism doesn't really super shift a lot and your meat doesn't really super change, then it's actually a pretty good straightforward thing because what you do is, let's say 3000 calories per day is what you need to maintain. You know you're gonna be mini cutting for four weeks and you wanna lose like, let's say you want to lose two pounds per week of tissue, or it's eight yeah. pounds total. It's, it's aggressive, but if you're large enough, that could make sense. And, and any muscle you lose is going to be super temporary to begin with. So once that occurs, once your mini cut starts, you just drop to 2000 calories per day, or maybe 2250 or something like that, because that math on that means you're going to lose two pounds a week, uh, not of weight. You just forget about your body weight for a while of actual fat tissue or just tissue in general, most of which is fat. So you go cut to 2000. It doesn't matter what the fuck the scale says. No matter what the hell a mirror is, because a mirror, you're going to lose like eight pounds in your first week. And the mirror is going to tell you you're losing muscle because you look like shit because all of your glycogen is deflated. Well, 
both of those are probably wrong, right? And then you just stay at 2,000. And people say, well, what about adjustments that I have to make that I didn't, you know, I, I calculated wrong? Well, don't calculate wrong. You know what I mean? Make sure you really know your maintenance and cut a nice hefty amount so that if you don't lose two pounds a week, you're at least losing, you know, 1.5 pounds a week or something like that. Um, once you do that, you cut to 2,000, you run that for four weeks, right? Hypothetically. And then once you're running that, you, jeez, oh, this dog is going nuts. She's just murdering the lion now. <laughs> so once you run that for four weeks, you're going to lose some amount of weight. You're going to lose some amount of fat. You're going to feel some amount of flat. So in any case, once you finish your diet, and let's say you decided to mass with a 250 calorie surplus, 3,250 calories the first day or whatever of your mass, and then just keep that going. When do you adjust that? Well, the first week is just gone because you have no idea what you really weigh. After the first week, now you have stable numbers. Week number two, week number three, now you can make adjustments. Does that make sense? So you yeah. basically, in the transitional periods, you just have to make really good educated guesses, which is a big, big part of using science. I, to me, this is like the crux of evidence-based practice. Like it's based on the evidence that the body changes based on certain calorie amounts, that you have a maintenance, that adaptive thermogenesis is not occurring, blah, 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 to a certain extent. It's based on that, and then once you have that knowledge, you use that knowledge and kind of let science steer the course. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because non-evidence-based practice approach would basically be like, well, I started to look flat, so I upped my carbs. It's like, what the fuck did you do that for? Like, well, it was too flat. Like, what does that even mean? Well, what about glycogen? They're like, I don't know. I felt like I was losing muscle. Like, what does feel like losing muscle feel like? You know what I mean? Be like, my strength was down. What's supposed to be down? You're not going to be all bloated for massing. You're not going to be as strong. So it's one of those things you just kind of let, you know, it's kind of like when uh, air, airline pilots, right? When they are flying through clouds, they fly by instruments alone. There's nothing to see. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they just assume their instruments are right. And when you, now, do you just get into a plane without calibrating and testing the instruments and just start flying? Hell no, because it could be off. Just the same way, you don't do one of these diets. You don't start mini cutting, et cetera, until you get a real good sense of what your maintenance is and then just cut to there and, and, and come back to what you think, you know, as soon as you know your maintenance is, you know where to cut and you know where to mass. That's it. And, and, and people, I've actually been asked the question, they're like, well, you know, I've been dieting for that long and I really don't track my calories and macros, but I, I want to do mini cut. What should I do? My answer is like, you should probably learn to track stuff before you do something like a mini cut. So mini cut's a very advanced thing. It's not really even for beginners to do. Um, it requires the use of quote unquote instrumentation, right? You, you have to know your body and you have to be able to quote unquote fly it blind um, yeah. because there's just too much noise. Otherwise you have no idea what's going on and you're going to be like, Oh my God, like, you know, they get the email from people like I lost five pounds in the first week. Is that okay? Or is it too much? It's like, it's irrelevant. Who yeah. it's, it's if you're eating 2000 calories and you program to eat 2000 calories, cause you know, your maintenance is 3000. It is completely fine. Right. But if you're like, well, I don't know what my maintenance was, well, shit, it could be way too much of a cut or not, you know, not enough. Who knows? And then it's a problem. So learn your maintenance values, learn your cutting values, learn your massing values, pick them wisely. And then especially in those transitional areas where things get foggy with body water, you're going to have to fly blind by the instruments. That's it. So I was just going to recap. Sorry, um, please, please continue. <laughs> no, yeah, I was just going to say, um, it, listening to you and kind of all the conundrums that you were going through as um, someone going through these experiences, 
as a coach, it's really funny to hear because I think a massive value of anyone who is a coach of people is we hold people back from making rash decisions about things. Totally. And we're making them accountable to tracking all of this past data so we can use that to then make the adjustments where appropriate. And the amount of times, I mean, I've used mini cuts for like the last number of years and found them to be extremely productive. But that literally, the scenario happens all the time where people are like, I'm we're losing way too much in the first weeks. So I'm like, it will, it, will, it will slow down. It's just like any other cut that you lose a lot in the first weeks. Mini cuts just more drastic. And actually totally. the scenario you took me through where you're like, you lose loads in the mini cut and then you come out and you look amazing and you gain. It kind of is very much similar to like, people know depletion and then you load kind of in a peak week for a bodybuilder. It's a very similar, but kind of an extended process of what's happening there. Like you're looking like a depleted wreck because you've got no glycogen. You've lost a bunch of fat as well by mm-hmm. the end of that week. And then you load mm-hmm. back up, you start looking like a God and you start getting vascular. Um, so no, it's, it's, yeah, it's the complete same way. So, uh, I totally. Think- uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, trust the process. Exactly. Trust the process and trust your instrumentation, so to speak. Trust your understanding of your body and not in some mystical or, you know, bodybuilding lore sense. Just trust, you know, your numbers really well. Bodyweight tracking is an incredibly powerful tool, but it has these areas where it's very weak and you have to know better. I mean, you have to know your pre-programmed values like, um, you know, loading carbohydrate prior to a show. You have to know you have to compete a bunch to get it right. You have to compete a bunch, experiment with different carb amounts per week and go off that and also go off your appearance. But even appearance can deceive you because you're not there until the day of the show. And you know, who knows how full you really are, how full you could be when people go off body, you know, and body weight can be very illusory, especially when you don't have context for it. Um, even if you do, it's funny to me, like a lot of people, uh, I'll usually like to post body weights for lifts, like on Instagram and stuff, just so people know how big is it. You, it it's one of those things you have to post. It's like Jeff Jeff Nippard's uh, "I'm five five. Oh. People just it doesn't matter. He could post a picture of food and they'd be like, "How tall are you?" Right? Because yeah. was God for say if he was six feet tall, people would just commit suicide in mass or something like that. <laughs> I'm like, oh, he's five five. Thank God. Right? Um, but it's one of those things. So I post my body weight, and and, and people will say things like. Like for, for for example, I didn't post my body weight uh, today for the squats that I did, but um, it was two hundred thirty-five point four pounds or something today, two thirty-five. And I swear to God, if I posted that, somebody would be like, "I thought you were two forty-five like two weeks ago." I'd be, like, oh, "I thought you were like two forty-nine." I'd be like, "Yes, I was." I'd be like, you lost fourteen pounds, and yes, I did. And they'd be like, "How?" And I'd be like, "Stop eating carbs tomorrow. Tell me how much weight you lose." And and, and it's one of those. It's just like. we're looking into body weight like an incredibly precise measurement at all times. It is just really not. So if you're looking at it like that, you're going to have some, some confusion and those same very individuals, I'm not too worried about them getting my stuff wrong because who cares? It's all for entertainment. But if they, you know, they die themselves, if they, you know, so I'll see bodybuilders like, um, you know, I follow some pros and they'll be like, you know, I was two twelve or two ten at the two twelve Olympia and now I'm walking around at 237. This is like two weeks later. And I'm like, I don't ask questions about, oh my God, how? I'm just like, yeah, they just got all their water and glycogen back and they're yeah. depleted as fuck to make the weight class. Like, makes sense. Um, imagine not knowing that that could happen. And then what do you do with your own plan? So as soon as your plan 
you know, goes anywhere, then you, you start to really freak out and make, like you said, rash changes. And then what, like, it's really, really bad news. And I think something this also reminded me of is like we know often when females are tracking body weight, they're comparing similar times in a cycle to similar times in the cycle in terms of kind of body weight because of all the fluctuations for hormones. Likewise, if you're comparing, don't compare one week of a mini cut compared to your body weight necessarily during one week of a mass, like compare the final week of massing to maybe the first week of your next mass, because mm-hmm. that, that's similar scenarios for the person in terms of got, they're going to be back with full glycogen stores and stuff like that. 100%. And you know, the, the female question gets brought up a lot in these discussions. And it, it's, it's really one of these things where you know, females are like, so my body weight gets funky during that time of the month. What do I do? And it's like, nothing. You just stop paying attention to the scale much and stick to your diet. Yeah. And they're like, hold on a second. What adjustments do I make? You don't make any adjustments. You stick to the plan. And they're like, but my weight's up five pounds. You're like, well, that's because of body water. But yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, people give body water all those credence and think stuff's really happening. And if it's a cyclical thing, especially like, with a you know female periods and times of the month, it's just don't change a thing. And be like, but I'm up five pounds. Be like, don't worry that this as quickly as that five pounds came on, six pounds will drop off because you're still in a deficit that week. And sure enough, it happens every time. But it's a matter of staying the course, trusting the instruments, and if you have a coach, trust your coach. Yeah. Yeah, so many times I've said to my, especially females, I'm like, no, just trust it. The next week it will come off. And every single time they're like, surprise, uh, you can tell me you told me so because, yeah, it all happens. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's one of the tricky things. And because I've coached myself through my contest prep, it's something I've struggled with at times where I'm like, oh, I want to make a change. Should I make a change? That is where consultations and talking to yourself, Mike, talking to Broderick, Jared, huge, and some other kind of guys in the industry has helped so much. But I think that, that if I hadn't had those chats, and I, like I can even remember talking to you at one point during my depletion, like sometimes I could have made decisions that would have just been the wrong thing to do in that moment. And that's yeah, where we can come in as a coach and really help someone. Totally. Yeah, I remember you were like, dude, I don't really feel well. And I'm like, describe how you feel. And you were like, hard to stay awake. I'm super tired. I almost pass out all the time. I'm like, that's exactly what I predict at this point. You're like, really? And I'm like, yeah. Like, so there's nothing wrong. I'm like, no, almost certainly not. If you feel any better, I'd be weirded out. And you'd be like, <laughs> okay. And then sure enough, like the, your, your, your loading started like two days after that. And you were like, I feel great. And after, I think I remember telling you like, this was your second to last depletion day. And I was like, you're actually going to feel better tomorrow when your body gets used to the shit. Sure enough, like the, the last depletion day days, you're kind of like, ah, you know, I'm hungry yeah i'm tired but it's not a really big deal it's the first couple and especially towards the middle of the depletion it really feels like you're doing something wrong and you're not yeah. it's totally cool uh it's just a matter of uh, again trusting the process and hey, there's no replacement for having gone through it a bunch of yeah. times so people can tell you all kinds of stuff but if you've gone through it a bunch you're like ah, i've seen this before yeah the second time was much better uh, and that's a really good point having said going through it because once people have gone through what you've described and trust the process, then they've seen it all out. They've got that data there. Look back at the data. Like if you ever need reassurance that you're doing it right, just look back at what you've done before 100%. in the past. It helps so much. hundred percent. Cool. So we can probably get to one question at least um, that's been asked through. Cool. Uh, and actually it's, it's kind of a question, but more of like a discussion. And 
I thought I'd be really interested to hear what your thoughts were on this, Mike. And they, they just said they want to hear more about your thoughts on kind of body image dysmorphia in the bodybuilding community. Um, they didn't ask any specific questions surrounding that. But I didn't know if you had any particular insights or personal experience with that yourself. Um, I think everyone who's into bodybuilding has some sort of not necessarily dysmorphia, but we definitely all have like we we always are our own worst enemy. We think we have, we're smaller than we are, we're faster than we are in those sort of areas. So I don't know if you wanted to touch on that particularly or if it was an area of interest. You know, I'm actually, um, it's too sensitive a topic and I actually can't discuss it. I'm totally kidding. I don't think anyone really believes anymore when I do shit like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm triggered. I'm triggered. That's it. We can't speak. Um, okay. So it's a, it's, it's a, unbelievably interesting topic and you kind of have these like with many things these two sides of a very polarizing spectrum on which too many people are on the extremes side is typically like the more conservative side of whatever you just look what you want to look like and you make sacrifices and you know, like if someone wants to be super lean all the time and that's what they care about, that's fine. And there's no problem. Like there's very eating disorders are very rare. Who gives a shit? Um, the other side is people who have gone way too far. A lot of these people have had disordered eating themselves and things like that and image body image disorders themselves. And they, they think that any attempt to alter your body from its given state is immediately disordered and certainly anything bodybuilders do is just super disordered it just leads nowhere to, but to bad things there's nothing good to be had and there's entire movements against dieting altogether you know so i think that uh, a good rational approach kind of starts somewhere in the middle and lets the the facts lead it to one side or the other based on the circumstance so the first first thing that has to be uh, i think talked about is that body image is a spectrum and that spectrum goes from no concern for body or, or at all slash super positive body image it goes all the way through what most people have normally which is like they don't really worry about how their bodies look but if they're like half naked at the beach for the first time in a while in front of People they want to impress, especially they get really worried about it, but usually they're not. And then you, the spectrum runs all the way down to the end, where it's like basically the walls, your the house of cards is falling around you at all times because you are simply terrified that you have the most disgusting body ever. You just don't belong in your body. You're going to do everything it takes to change it. And you're going to do things that are completely dangerous. And your idea about how your body compares to other people is just grotesquely inaccurate and by all objective grounds and you are full on disordered. So luckily, to some extent, psychiatrists have actually made a pretty cool thing where there is a delineation between the whole spectrum up to 10% or so of people on the disordered end. And that cutoff there at that 90% mark is the cutoff between disordered eating patterns or body dysmorphic thoughts versus actual diagnosable body dysmorphia or disordered eating, right? And that 10% now, if you're in the, you know, 89% and not the 90 
do you still more or less have anorexia or something like that? Yes, for sure. But when people say, like, I think I have an eating disorder, you can actually apply some pretty uh, rigorous psychological examination tools and psychiatric examination tools. And after uh, applying that test, uh, speaking to a therapist, they go, you know, you definitely have some tendencies, but we, we just can't classify this as an overall disorder. So, you know, a lot of the, there's tons of questions. Probably one of the most important ones to delineate whether or not it's a disorder is uh, it's kind of two very related questions. Once, one question is, and, and, and the answers on one of these questions, um, obviously the answers are, if you're super disordered, sometimes you answer them in ways to make yourself feel okay at the moment or to make the therapist not think you're crazy, but you yeah. really know the answer is something else. So honesty is a very big part, part of the process here. One of the questions is, how much of your normal daily life is interfered with by your obsession with your body? And the other question, um, well, so first, so sorry. So let's, first, let's talk about what that exactly means. Um, you know, do you bring your meals everywhere that you go with? You know, do you always have meals where you go? Uh, do people invite you to parties and you say you can't go to parties? Does this occur? An advanced form of the question would be like: Does this occur at times in which you'd rather be able to participate but you can't? So, like, if a, if you're dieting for a show, you're yeah. just like, ah, I super want to go, but I can't. I got a show. But if it's like not show time and you don't have to be lean, and the only person the onus is on yourself, this is why it's difficult with competitive athletes because they're like, I had to step on stage, you're like, yeah, yeah, totally. But like, there's nobody watching, and you you still can't have a, a bag of chips or some pizza or something like that. The so 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 that's a this is a very important question, right? Yeah. How much is interfering with you? And the sub question to that, or the annotation to that, is how much is this stuff that you would ideally not want to feel and not want to have to do? That's a very deep thing. So let, let me let me describe it really quick. When you and I are in prep mode or something like that, we're in mass mode right? Like, let's say we're stuffing ourselves with tons of carbohydrates, tons of clean food. And we like, it's late, it's laborious. It's clearly interfering with our life. Like, and we had to bring some snacks to say we went to go watch a football game and we, you know, our significant others are watching it, but we're like snacking because we have to get up a certain number of carbohydrates and proteins. Is that laborious for us? Yes. Is it interfering with our life? Yes. Do we are, do we love the process? Totally. You're like, I'm a fucking machine. I'm engineering a huge cyborg warrior. I love everything about this process. And, and people are like, man, you really look like you're suffering. You're like, I'm not really suffering. Like, I love this stuff. Or like when you're dieting and you get the hunger pains and you're like, yes, yes. Like I'm getting lean. This is awesome. And people are like, don't you wish you could just not have to do this? And you're like, I can not do this tomorrow and be yeah. totally cool with it. I just chose to do it and it feels good. Like I like it. I mean, of course it's inconvenient, but like, you know, going to work that you love to work on projects that you're passionate about is also inconvenient to your life. But like you don't have a work disorder, right? You actually love being there, you know, taking care of children, right? So you take care of children that are yours and um, it's work, right? It's a pain in the ass, but you love your children. So nobody would ever say you have like a child taking care of disorder. They're like, just get rid of your children, dude. You don't need them. Like that's not really the case. And people would be like, I don't want to get rid of my children. Are you crazy? Like I love them. And they're not, they're not lying to themselves when they say they love the process as a yeah. whole. They just has nasty parts when you get into disorder stuff 
is when, is when people seem to feel like they have to do this stuff. And you're like, what if you weren't doing it? Like, what if, what if a magic genie came by and he could, he let you calm down and just be peaceful and happy. And he gave you the body of your dreams at any one time. Like you and I would probably deny that because we're like, well, how, how what the hell are we supposed to be building if the genie gave us the body? Like, who gives us a shot? I don't, I don't want to magically wake up and, and Rolly Winkler's body. I want to build Rolly Winkler's body. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the, the buildings, all the fun. Uh, these people, if they're being honest, they're like, if I could not worry about my body for one fucking second, I would take it immediately. I would pay thousands of dollars for it. Uh, if I could just be in the ideal body all the time, it would just free me in a way that I can't even comprehend. That. So if something is heavily interfering with your life and you just really would like it not to, yeah. it's out of your control. It's it's um, somebody with an anxiety disorder and they're just anxious all the time. If you go like, hey, would you rather not be anxious? Like, yes, of course I'd rather not be anxious. And they're not like, no, I love this anxiety. It keeps me on edge. Like very few people say yeah. that, right? Now, the problem with body dysmorphic disorders in general is that a lot of times people are so enveloped in the disorder they will lie to themselves about liking the process. They just don't see any other way. That's really tough. It takes a yeah. very well-trained therapist, many sessions to dig into that kind of stuff. Notice I said, well, very well-trained therapist. Coaches are, are out of the picture for this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's not within our skill set. So if someone is, so basically, if you're a coach or if you are an individual who is going through this dieting yourself, um, coaches will see a lot of the stuff because they get such a huge broad range of people. Um, if you are in a position where you're dealing with someone or you yourself think that you might have some funky stuff going on, it's a really good idea to see an expert in the field of psychiatry or psychology and really talk this out and be like, hey, I might have a disordered eating pattern or something. Can, you, can we talk this through? They'll be like, yeah, we'll just have to actually administer a formal test for the whole thing. They can give you a lot of insight as to what's going on. And if you're a coach, it's a good idea. Like if you really suspect your client is doing something funky up here, you got to send them to that professional or yeah. at the very least suggest it. And if they don't take your advice, you might have to call it quits with them as a client. Be like, listen, I, I can't help you. My, my yeah. toolbox doesn't deal with this. Um, I care about your health and safety more than I care about uh, you winning shows or you getting in shape because it's more important than all those things. Objectively, there's just no debate about that. Um, so, you know, I'd really, you know, I'm sorry I can't work with you anymore. But here's, you know, a couple of individuals in the area that specialize in this kind of stuff where I encourage you to find someone in your area. Now, you don't want to fire clients right offhand. The first thing you want to do is worry, is, is get them to see a professional, right? Or ask them if they're interested in that sort of thing. Yeah. And then if they just refuse and say, okay, when's my next diet? At that point, I would be, I would highly recommend you, you, you very politely, very courteously with every intention to get them to see a professional distance yourself from that client. Not like stop returning the emails, just be like, we, we, I'm going to return the, the money that you paid me. You, know, so you paid me for three months. I'm going to return the last month of payment because it's in the last month now. Um, and I would love to coach you again in the future. I can't coach you until we get the situation figured out, right? Um, I, I would use that language versus sorted out yeah. because figured out, we, we, we're not really sure what's going on, right? And a lot of the stuff, uh, disordered eating patterns are, are so um, often so difficult to treat that there is no getting sorted out. Like the sorted out is you never do a formal diet ever again. Um, and, and that brings me kind of to my last point. If the disordered eating is bad enough, it's pervasive enough, a lot of it is really um, 
is really, uh, I don't want to say uh, the technical term is intractable. It, it, you can't ever fully recover from it. Right. What you can do is put yourself into a position where you are not going to be in trouble with it. So here's what I mean by that. Uh, the softer uh, analogy is let's say you have a huge fear of spiders and you're just never going to get over it. Just don't be around spiders and you'll be okay, right? right? Um, the harsher analogy is alcoholism. Like you don't actually recover. You know, people say I'm a recovering alcoholic. You don't ever recover from alcoholism to the extent that I know. You're never going to go back after an alcoholic to just a couple drinks a night and you're good to go. It's just going to be no alcohol ever again. And if you don't put yourself into situations where you have alcohol, you, you know, there's millions literally of perfectly functioning recovered alcoholics, so to speak, right? Or recovering. That's why they stay recovering because it never, never stops. But uh, there's so many of those people that just, they just don't put themselves in that position anymore. So there's a very small chance that if you are very, very uh, dysmorphic, um, that the bodybuilding stage and the pursuit of enhanced uh, body modification is just not going to be for you. But the good news is it doesn't mean you have to leave the iron game behind. You can start doing CrossFit. You can start doing gymnastics. You can start doing weightlifting and powerlifting and strongman and strongwoman and all that stuff, but with modifications. And one of those is don't you ever fucking think about weight classes anymore. You train, you eat well, you eat healthy and have some snacks that you feel like, and you compete at whatever weight class you land in. And if you have a coach, they should know about your history. Uh, and they should never suggest that you cut or mass if, if your, your disorder is one uh, which is affected by that, which, which, which mostly it's, it's both ways are affected. Does that make sense? So for most people you know, that, are go, that are that badly off, you just got to pick another hobby. And I think is a lot of times I'll say this. People say this kind of stuff that I just say and they say it casually. Like, like you can just drop something that you're super passionate about if you're doing it, it's going to be tough. Yeah. But also remember that like, if you think that everyone's value, because of the kind of people we surround ourselves with, um, I mean, kind of uh, Instagram stuff we have, Facebook stuff, the kind of communities, it makes it seem like how you look is everything. Yeah. You know, if you follow enough Instagrams, just bodybuilders and powerlifters and stuff, you know, your appearance is everything. Or if you're in like Hollywood or something like that, how you look is everything. You know, ask you a question. How does Bill Gates look? You think Bill Gates gives a shit how he looks? Is someone going to say, oh, Bill, you know, imagine sitting on a plane next to Bill Gates by accident, like you got bumped up to first class and there he is, and you don't know who he is. You like look at the guy and he's this nerdy fucker and you're like, oh, he's kind of like skinny fat or whatever. He's out of shape. This guy's a loser. Be like, this guy owns the fucking plane you're flying on as a joke if he wanted to. Just, oh, I just bought everything on here. I just bought whatever company, your personal training company, I just bought that too as a joke. <laughs> like, you know, like this man's a god. He's barely human. So it's one of those like, oh, wow, there is actually like value. Like Albert Einstein, uh, you know, Charles Darwin. What the fuck did they look like? <laughs> Who gives a shit, right? It's one of those things like, what about like somebody like, um, I was going to use Mother Teresa, but my, my readings of Christopher Hitchens would prevent me from using that in this context. What about somebody who spent their entire life in charity involved in helping sick yeah. children do you imagine you're sitting next to her and she's like literally on her way to india to go help sick children again for the 80th time in her life you're gonna be like this girl's fat as hell dude i guarantee you she feels like shit all the time like she's a goddess like, you have nothing on her you know like like uh donald trump 
what does he look like? You think he get, you think he cares what he looks like? He has a freaking nuclear button in his in his hands. <laughs> Hillary Clinton is like the most one of the most successful female politicians of all time. Hillary Clinton doesn't give a damn about what she looks like, and nobody else should either. You know what I mean? So we get caught up in this world that looks or everything or that strength is everything, and it's just it's just like this cool fun, but totally like uh you know random hobby that we all picked up like it just like in the grand scheme of life it doesn't mean a whole lot and you can easily it takes months it takes longer to retrain yourself if you're no longer going to be a part of that community because uh, for psychiatric reasons but 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 to say that there's light at the end of the tunnel jesus there's probably more light at the end of that tunnel than there is at our tunnel you know what i mean like we chose this thing that we love but like we're missing out on a ton of shit in life you look out people your age steve what are they doing they're having drinks they're having a good time they're having laughs you and i probably think like during some times like man god damn it i wish i was a normal fucking person so i could do that kind of shit but we also know that we can do that kind of shit anytime we want there's a lot of good stuff to life it's not all about getting jacked not even remotely it's just like weird thing we pick like imagine someone was like a super crazy gamer online gaming world and for some reason they got like banned from gaming for a while and they'd be like oh my god my life's meaningless it's like be confused and be like i can't play games that's all there is be like i have played one computer game in my life it was an unsatisfactory experience and i can tell you that i've been super happy before that during that actually during it was pissing me off and then afterwards i'm super good and they'd be like how how is it that you live without gaming like you can live without almost every single hobby we have this is a fucking hobby after all and there's no love lost so people say like oh my god what am i going to do if i'm not involved in like fitness and bodybuilding like 99 percent of all the good things in the world have fucking nothing to do with that so it's one of those realizations that i think people don't talk about enough no i i i mean really really good chat over that and I think you're completely right. People don't talk about it enough. And I, I, what was ringing through my ears at the end, and you kind of said it, but you didn't say the word I, I want to say is perspective. So many times I have to remind myself, remind clients, have perspective. I mean, we're upset. It's, it's like when we get back to, we think about the, the training and nutrition pyramids um, or your, the, the graphics that you design and you talk about the principles. When you draw, think like really have a bird's eye view and you look at really what matters that that's really good when you get too caught up in the little minute details mm-hmm. that's where people can get really stressed and i i love the details you love the details and like a lot of the listeners will but sometimes they can be more stressful than it's even worth in your life um and there's there is more to life than what we're doing right here right now for sure for sure and, and one of the things that i have to say just to balance the perspectives a little bit um, but there is a reason that to qualify something as an eating disorder or a body dysmorphia disorder, a psychiatrist has to uh, administer a very comprehensive examination and analysis. You don't just call jacked people who spend a lot of time obsessed with their bodies disordered. A lot of people like to tend to do that. or um, And you can understand in their case, it's very sympathetic, however, very wrong. People who are kind of um, you know survivors of that sort of lifestyle and they were disordered, they kind of start to thinking that everyone is, is like they used to be. This is not true. Probably most people aren't. So just to, to make sure I touch on this kind of statistical thing, most bodybuilders almost certainly don't have body dysmorphic disorder. Most figure competitors and physique competitors and stuff like that and bodybuilders um, on the smaller side probably don't have true eating disorder, bulimia or anorexia or exercise addiction. Some of them certainly do. 
whopping proportion, but most probably don't. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that we just assume that people do. And, and then one, one of the, that kind of goes down the drain when you see like retired bodybuilders and you're like, huh, you're not jacked anymore. And they're like, nope. Dorian Yates is a perfect example. Dorian Yates looks like a regular guy now. And you think like, people have asked him like, so you just look like a regular guy. He's like, yeah. And they're like, you don't miss your muscles. He's like, I did everything there was in the bodybuilding world. I won the Olympia six times. Like, that's about it, man. I, I, I put my sword in the ground. That, that's it. And they're like, you don't miss being jacked. He's like, being jacked feels like shit. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, it's just, you know, but, 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 but then there's other people, right? Um, so, so most bodybuilders, I think, you know, like I'm getting to that place where I've been training and competing and being jacked long enough to where like, I think like if I got super injured tomorrow, would I just be devastated? And like, I couldn't continue to live this life. I'd be like, no, I'll just do other stuff. And there's lots of stuff to do. Um, I'd, I'd be very fine. And I think in, in, I'll probably be training and competing for another five to 10 years, like at a, as high level as I can, really pushing things. Um, I mean, I, it used to be that in my early 20s, thinking of not being jacked or not aspiring to be more jacked was like terrifying because I just hadn't done enough. Um, nowadays, it's starting to look pretty normal. It'd just be like, ah, oh, sweet. I'm just like, I'm going to weigh 170 pounds and feel like fucking human being again instead of just have to be burdened by size all the time. So I think people assume that super jacked people or super lean people are disordered. That's just not the case much of the time. But floating around in those people, often hidden, are very disordered thinkers and only a really trained professional can discern them. I'll tell you what, uh, if I had to gamble, I would say that, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know if Rich Piana himself is an example of this, but um, there are people pushing heavy, heavy gear into their late 40s, early 50s, and they're just doing everything they can to stay as jacked as possible. In, in Rich's case, and many folks like him, you know, injecting synthol and other oils and stuff. And it's one of those things where it's like, man, you know, boy, does it look like you can't give this up, you know? Um, so it's, it's, uh, that's when you kind of get a feel a bit too late, really, unfortunately, uh, for people who have, you know, had body dysmorphia. Um, one of the things in the bodybuilding world that you see two kinds of things in natural bodybuilders, you see body dysmorphia a lot of times when people are told to mass and kind of get blurry abs because they need them also like, no, 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 I can't lose my abs. I can't lose my abs. Incomprehensible. If someone fights you a lot on that, it starts to look like maybe they should talk to somebody. Right. And then in, in, in drug using bodybuilding, pro bodybuilding, uh, a lot of times the way you get a hint, if a friend or a client of yours or something is on the disordered side of the spectrum is if they can't give up high dose gear, you know, you tell them, okay, now we're going to be tapering things down, let your body recover a little. And they're like two weeks into the taper, like, dude, I don't feel the same. I feel like shit. Like my muscles are deflating. And you're like, yeah, that's the point. There's literally like, you're going to lose like five pounds of muscle during these next two months. And they're like, I can't, I can't do that. And you're like, but you're going to get them all back. And then some, they're like, I can't be like this. And you're like, time to chat with someone. You know, yeah. does that make sense? Like if you can't give it up for even a minute, that's not great. No, yeah, because I think a lot of people will be able to relate to that. But I think it's a, for hopefully majority of people, it's a short term kind of, they're like, okay, it's a cost that I have to deal with and I can get through it. It's not nice, but okay. Whereas the ones who will never die, they're the yo-yo dieters or the ones who are just continuously running mini cuts. Or I, I mean, I've seen it in a lot of females who just obsess about staying in competition shape. 
um, they're the ones, yeah, you know, you need to refer them or not accept them as uh, clients. Yeah. A lot of times it also comes down to if people refuse to subscribe to objective criteria that is supposedly fitting their goals. So I'll explain what I mean by that. If objectively you're at the lowest body fat you're supposed to be and still have a normally functioning body and your objective goal that you've told people is to get muscular, not stay to be the leanest person of all time, the goal should be to gain weight. Yeah. And then when someone gains weight for two weeks and goes, I can't do this, I don't want to do this, I think I should get leaner, you have to sit them down and go, okay, so, so as the numbers show, that's a wrong answer. You actually don't need to get leaner. You need to get, now you don't need to get fatter, right? But you need to put on weight and fat is inevitable. If they can't do that, even though logically, because you know, like if you're like 30% fat, the choice to go down or up in body fat is really kind of yours. It's kind of equivocal. It's like whatever, either way is logical. But I can think of a situation that was recently made aware of in which um, a female client is like pushing 14, 15% body fat. And uh, the coach was like, so what do you want to do? And she's like, I'm going to cut. And they're like, okay, well, sorry. you're going to lose your period. You're going to start losing bone mass. And she's like, okay, so we should mass. And they're like, well, what do you want? She's like, I want to be muscular. I'm like, okay, let's start massing. And she was massing for two weeks and she's lost it. Right? Like, I can't do this. I need to cut. I'm fat. I need to cut. And it's like, but you don't, but, this, yeah. but the numbers just say you don't. It doesn't matter what you feel. The objectively, if you really say that you want to get muscular, you don't mean it, right? Because you're not doing what it takes, right? Yeah, so, so that's the deal there is, you know, especially when people um, I- ignore physiologically relevant and objective advice to their goals, that's a problem. So, so yeah. why am I saying this? Um, Classically trained clinical nutritionists oftentimes don't address goals and desires of people involved in physique sport. So they'll say things like, why can't you just be normal and eat normally? And the person will be like, I don't want to fucking look normal. I want to look amazing. I want to be jacked. And there's nothing unhealthy about wanting to be jacked, right? Yeah. Like, especially if you're drug-free, you don't weigh 280 pounds. Like, geez, have at it, right? Like nobody comes up to you, Steve, and is like, you're too muscular, you need to stop. Like no, nobody with medically hey. you know, trained <laughs> modern, modern, nobody comes up to me and says that either. You know, like as I go to the doctor, all my blood works good. I'm like, sweet, have at it, right? There's not, you know, if you weigh like 350 or something like that, yeah. especially if you're over fat, that's, you know, yeah. when people are lean, it's very difficult to make the case that they're unhealthy at all. So in any case, uh, you know, a lot of nutri- classically trained nutritionists will say things like, you know, well, you're you're 20% body fat. You shouldn't get any leaner for a female, for example. You know, females at 15% is kind of their cutoff for health. That's a wrong statement. It's just wrong, right? So after a woman hears that, she leaves the classical nutrition field behind altogether. She says, those people are just slobs. They don't give a shit about their bodies. They have no idea what I'm going through to try to become this exotic art form. Yeah. But a properly trained modern nutritionist with sport background in an involvement in the industry or just in a sport can be like, Hey, 20% super cool. Uh, you wanted to go to 15, let's go to 15. Mm-hmm. But, and they're like, well, let's keep cutting. That's when the modern nutrition is like, well, we don't have a show for you to do. And they're like, well, I just want to get leaner. Be like, the only reason to drop below 15 for females is if you have a show in mind. Other, yeah. Otherwise you are literally just going to gain less muscle between 10 and 15% because your health is going to be impacted. And if they fight them person on that, that's how you know things are a bit fishy. So it's, it's one of those things where, um, you know, 
it really, really is important to make sure you're speaking to people that have an understanding of what you want and what the healthy and effective ramifications are, kind of the borderlines are of where you're going. And you, you tell them where, where you want to go and they can take you there. But as soon as you start telling them things that don't make sense with what you want, that's when disordered stuff clearly uh, is clearly visible, right? Like you tell people you're not afraid of spiders and then you start shaking around spiders, like something's up, right? Yeah. You tell people you want to get muscular, but every three weeks you have the idea to get as lean as possible. It seems like there's some disordered stuff going on there. Perfect. Um, and I think that was, yeah, really interesting. I'm glad I did, I did bring that up. Um, I'm sure we could talk about that for, yeah, hopefully we beat that to death. So yeah, no, it was, it was super interesting. I think that a lot of people can relate to it. And if anyone is thinking and they're listening to this is, and it's kind of ringing some bells or something like that, then maybe, I mean, have a think about finding someone who can help you in that scenario. Um, totally. Or just start reading online about this kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, if you're reading online and more bells go off, then speaking to someone is, is a really good idea. And, and remember, um, another thing, the stigma with going to a psychiatrist or a psychologist is just this is dumb as shit ever. It's just completely pointless. Psychologists, psychiatrists get paid to enhance your life. You cannot go to them. Your life will just be shittier. It's a service provider. Like, do you have a stigma about getting gas in your car and say, well, I really wish my car could run without gas? No, dumb motherfucker. That's how your car runs. So do you avoid going to psychologists, psychiatrists who go, well, I really should be able to handle this on my own. Why? Do you build your own computer? Do you farm your own fucking animals? Do you have your own water? This is, this is someone who can, you know, like. You, you hire a coach, you're like, I should be hiring a coach to do a, a show. I should really be doing this on my own. You can say that about anything and it's nonsense. Yeah. Like we live in a capitalist society where you can hire people for service provision and they help you. That's their job and they're better at it than you are. So if you really think you should talk to someone, talk to someone. It's not, it's not a deal at all. And if someone shuns you for, uh, you know, for going to see like, oh, really? You're going to see a shrink? Like, fuck that person. That person's out of date by like 30 years. So you're on the side of the right for sure on that one. No, 100%. Um, and I think, well, we've taken a chunk of your time and we've covered a lot there. So we'll round it up. And I do want to say again, a massive thank you for Mike for coming on and beating these topics to death because I think people, I mean, everyone loves these chats. And I want to remind them that we have the links for your new ebook um, in below. So if people want to get on those volume landmarks, if you find that interesting, if you have read the scientific principles of strength training, definitely get on it. If you haven't read that book, then that will be linked below as well. Um, so yeah, thank you, Mike. And uh, we'll catch everyone soon. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Steve. And uh, sorry to ramble your guys' ears off today, but if you want detail, that's why I'm here on these podcasts. <laughs> and uh, honestly, if, if it brought up any questions or concerns from people, drop them in the below, like comments, and we can always bring those up in future podcasts. So, Perfect. Yeah. Thank you, guys.